My name is Ali, I'm a doctor and YouTuber. I'm Taymor, I'm a data scientist and writer. And you're listening to Not Overthinking, the weekly podcast where we think about happiness, creativity, and the human condition. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Not Overthinking. Uh, this is a very special episode. Uh, if you're a regular listener, you'll know that we very, very rarely have uh, guests on the podcast, uh, but we've made an exception uh, this week, and we're very happy to be joined by Professor Jason uh, Blakely. Jason, thanks for joining us. Thank you. I really appreciate the invitation. Awesome to have you. Um, and so if if you listen to, I think, the you know, two episodes ago, we talked about a book of Jason's that I recently read that I've been uh, raving about to everyone. It's my go-to birthday present probably for 2024 is going to be just giving giving friends this book. Um, and we talked about it you know, briefly a couple of episodes ago, uh, but now we have the man himself to help us dig into uh, the topics, which we'll get into in a sec. A quick bio on Jason. Jason is uh, Associate Professor of Political Science at Pepperdine University in California. Uh, he's written a few books. Uh, most recently, uh, We Built Reality, uh, which is the book uh, that we were talking about a couple of episodes ago. Uh, and he has a new book coming out in uh, March called Lost in Ideology. Um, my interest in Jason's work mostly comes from his sort of expertise analysis on, uh, I guess, like the, the modern ideological arena uh, and sort of how to make sense of it. Um, there's a couple of uh, notable philosophers, uh, Charles Taylor and Alistair McIntyre, whose works are very hard to penetrate if you're a lay person. And <laughs> Jason uh, has made a lot of those ideas uh, more digestible. Um, and so that's kind of how, yeah, how this got started. I think, Jason, I followed you on Twitter, I know, probably like yeah. last year at some point, and at some point dropped you a DM. I think I asked you, like, should I read your new book or should I, like, stick to the old one or something? And he said, you should, you said I should read the new book. <laughs> I said, it's wonderful you want to read any of my books. I, yeah, <laughs> these were some good DMs, yeah. <laughs> nice, yeah. awesome. Um, so look, I'll try and sort of summarize what my sort of high, high level understanding of your main shtick, um, and then curious to kind of dig in and, and get your thoughts and, and you know, have sort of a rough idea of a starting point. So, oh, sorry, before we my, do that, my, can I just ask oh, yeah. a very noob question? Uh, what does a political scientist do? And like, mm -hmm. what is, what is political science? Yeah, well, actually, that does get into my main shtick because I don't think political <laughs> science. So, and often in the UK, it's referred to as a politics department, which is the older form. Yeah. So yeah. I'm within the I, I'm within that motley band of scholars that just studies politics, and then some people think they're doing science, and I don't really think they are. And I'm in the sort of heterodox view. You know, I, I do political theory, political philosophy, history, political thought. But what we're all sharing as an object of inquiry is what the heck is politics and what's going on with it. And some people think, well, we can do a science to figure that out. Yeah. Okay. And at what, at what point did it turn from politics to political science? Was that like 50 years ago or something? Oh, no. Yeah, it was probably the early 20th century um, in the United States. It was kind of, you know, different oh, okay, okay. histories. But it happened to a lesser extent in in Europe and the UK, the United States is kind of the home of, we'll turn this sucker into a science and we'll crack all the problems kind of a thing. But it, it's a it's a global movement to to make it a physics or a, yeah. I have a friend, I should say as an aside, who is a natural scientist who says, you know, you never add science to something that is actually a science. You don't need to worry <laughs> yeah. about people that physics is in fact a science, but with politics, this anxiety exists, right? So... <laughs> Hence political yeah, science. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. I think Ali, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned a similar quote last time. So yeah, look, it, it seems like your shtick is basically like, Hey, you know, in, in sort of in popular discourse, we have for whatever reason, uh, which probably we'll get into, we have this idea 
that there are these things called facts on the on the one hand, and that there are there's these things called values uh, or you know, ideology. You know, you know, they're sort of factual statements and normative statements, so statements about value and you know what one should do and stuff like this. And um, and you know, I think where we are now this sort of seems to be that you know everyone's we kind of agree like look everyone's got different values you know we're very pluralistic societies we're not going to agree on the value stuff let's just talk about the facts stuff and yeah. so in public discourse everyone uh claims to be talking about the facts i was like hey man i'm just i'm just talking about the facts i'm talking about the science um this is this is what the science says this is what the fact says um but your shtick is basically that these um you know this move um is basically smuggling in actually a set of values and an ideology um that can be go can go unnoticed if uh, if you're not paying uh, enough attention. Um, and on, on this podcast, one of our favorite uh, topics is sort of psyops in general. Are you familiar with this term psyop? I, I don't know yeah, how I'm through you actually, Tamor. Oh, so okay. <laughs> okay. It's warfare, right? It's a metaphor of like yeah, 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 yeah. So I think yeah, psychological warfare. Yeah, I think uh, it's originally from that. But people uh -huh. who spend too much time on Twitter basically use it to refer to any any kind of like uh sort of covert agenda to like manipulate you without you realizing you know something like this um mm -hmm. and so yeah it feels like your stick is basically look social science is you know probably some of it is good but it's a massive psyop right now um and we need to kind of rethink um how we how we approach this whole topic is that is that roughly correct yeah it is roughly correct i would say that um a couple things just to so, so everyone who's really worried that i'm one of those people who doesn't believe in facts i do in fact <laughs> believe in facts whether they believe in me or not you know i'm not i'm not a radical postmodernist right my problem really has to do with the study of human beings the social and human sciences that's where the nature of facts gets a little bit trickier than first meets the eye, you know, in, in the natural sciences, if you say there's one moon orbiting the earth, that's a fact, okay, or like the flat earth thing. But we have a different way of um, relating to the social world and to social reality. And it's not completely observer independent in the same way. Like if I get the moon wrong, if I get that the earth is flat, you know, wrong, I get that theory, you know, and pick up the wrong theory nothing changes about the world out there. And so I think there's a basic distinction between the natural and social sciences, because a lot of what we built reality is going on about. And some of my other work is just that in the social sciences, if you make a descriptive theory, it can actually enter into and change social reality in very profound ways. And in that sense, we sort of dwell in our theories. Um, and the other thing I want to say, though, if I can briefly is, PSYOP is a great metaphor. I see it on Twitter. It's a very cool term. And since Taymor kept using it, I was like, I better look this up. And I'm, I'm good with that metaphor. It's a wonderful metaphor with the big caveat that if it's a PSYOP, it's one we're doing to ourselves. So my biggest shtick is, and I'm not the first one to come up with this, but my, my little obsession is that modern people have a very specific way of being superstitious. And we do it to ourselves. It's not someone doing it to, uh, to us which is we're so impressed with the natural science revolution for very good reasons. It's, it's amazing. It's made all sorts of advances in medical science, which I know Ali is, <laughs> could speak to much more authoritatively, um, but physics, et cetera, all this stuff. But um, we therefore think that it can explain everything, including social reality in the same way, our ideological and moral quandaries. And so we tend to build a false form of authority around science where it's not applicable. So I really think the psyop, if you like, or the self-mystification, the self-psyop, the mass self-psyop is we kind of dance around a certain like fake authority that's um, pretends to be scientific, but it, it really isn't, which, you know, more could be said about. Yeah. Yeah.
okay nice yeah i think that i think that's a good distinction because yeah i think that the psyop is like yeah like you said we're kind of doing it as much as other people are doing it to us and the authorities are doing it to us and so on um it seems so one one of the big things that you kind of uh attack in your book is uh economics and i think actually probably like a couple of years ago ali i don't know if you remember this correct me if i'm just making this up i'm pretty sure i've said a bunch of times on this podcast or outside of this podcast that like it's kind of weird that we we think about pretty much everything in quasi economic terms. Have I talked about that on podcast Ali like in in, in previous years? Uh, we we've, we've done on, about two hundred episodes, so I, I can't quite <laughs> I can't quite recall. <laughs> so okay, for listeners Basically, who may not have listened to all two hundred, <laughs> yeah, I think part, yeah, I think partly why like the 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 ideas of the book really resonated with me is because I've sort of had this sort of weird, weird feeling about all of this stuff for a few years and have kind of felt like yeah it's kind of weird how we think about most things you know we describe most things as like optimization problems and you know stuff like this and um you know like the dating thing about oh you know you should uh date a pool of people and then 37 percent, you know this kind of thing um algorithmic dating yeah that's that was a book that was quite popular here i don't know how it did in Europe, but it was huge here in the United States. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure if the I'm not sure how well the book did, but I think the idea everyone like you know it comes up at parties often. Oh, you know, um, you know they've done like, they've like done the maths and they figured out the optimal way, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, kind of thing. Um, so yeah, where let, let, let's maybe start on the economic side specifically. You know, where you know how how far back would we have to go for the algorithm? You know, if so, if someone came out and said, look, I've like I've I've done the calculus. And, you know, you should date a bunch of people and then 37, yeah, whatever the thing is, 30, you know, after the 37% of person, you choose the next best. You know, how far back would we have to go for someone to think, what the hell are you talking about? Rather than, oh, man, that's, that's so interesting. That's like, <laughs> they figured it out, you know? Yeah. Well, it, there's the long story and the long story is you'd have to go back to the natural science revolution because the minute that gets going or like within very short time, people think, well, this is wonderfully successful. Let's apply this to human beings. So everyone from Thomas Hobbes saying he can make a machine out of the state or, you know, um, later versions of this that are quite popular, you know, people know about them as pseudosciences like phrenology or, or that kind of a thing, right? So like a, a science of human intelligence by measuring skulls or whatever. Um, but there's a shorter story about why economics, because economics is the latest in, in a bid to sort of say we're the we're the queen of the social sciences, we're the really scientific one. Um, and that probably happened along with different ideological transformations that had to do with a kind of vaunting of the free market and a polemic against the state and that the state was always ineffective and always sort of um, inefficient and that markets were more efficient. And they kind of went in tandem with each other in a kind of um, looping effect where the, the um, reputation of academic economics, you know, like the popular version of this, of course, free economics that how markets explain everything, like everything you do, right? Like from, um, yeah, who you date to sumo wrestling or whatever. Economics is like a kind of imperial science of human behavior. And um, that is a much newer story. It probably goes back about 50, 60, 70 years to neoclassical economics and the formulation of a kind of economics that looked really mathematical, you know, with models and statistics. And so it looked a lot more like a social physics than okay. some of the earlier bids on a science like sociology or psychology started to look like they were kind of mucking around in problems they couldn't resolve. And at least economics could give us just a kind of mathematical model for how people behave. Yeah. yeah. 
I mean, I think if I think like this is kind of my layperson's understanding of economics, and I think it probably matches most people's. I would have thought like, yeah, I mean, obviously economics is about like trying to model society and the economy and stuff like this and predict some stuff. Like what were people doing in economics before like 70 years ago? Um, well, there were many different rival schools and that's one, one way to know that there's something amiss in the human sciences is that we don't have what you could call like a normal or consensual science. Like if you go to chemistry, you go to physics, you'll learn certain basics and you know, everyone knows they have limits. Like you'll learn Newtonian physics and yeah, everyone knows in the back of their mind, there's Einstein, there's relativity, but in the social sciences, economics included, there isn't a consensus around what even the basic concepts and objects of study are or how to explain them. And instead, what you have is rival schools. And that's true, both in the sense I was just saying that different branches of social science will make a bid on saying, we're the, we're the queen of the social sciences. Psychology explains everything or economics explains everything. But it's also true interior to those disciplines. Like if you take a psychology class or an economics class, you'll actually learn that there are rival, especially psychology right now, there's like behaviorism, there's Freudian, you know, which is kind of out of vogue, but has had a slight resurgence yeah. recently. There are different theories that are actually incompatible with each other. Economics got really dominated by this neoclassical, very mathematical model building school that has a theory of rational choice and humans is always calculative and egoistic about 67 years ago. But before that, it was a lot more kind of historical sociological. There was one school that was like that. So if you go read the great economists of the 19th century, um, like Karl Marx, or even honestly, Adam Smith, there's a lot more sort of accounts of sort of historical case studies and empirical stuff that modern or neoclassical economists anyway would say, hey, let's just build a model about a rational actor and then bang out the math on what like this what will happen or, or build the model to see what will happen when someone is rational in this economic sense that they maximize their preferences mm. and all this. Um, but I, you know, the thing is that th this, this whole thing about like free economics, it was at a high point, but it's really coming down because of a rival, but behavioral economics that says, no, everyone's predictably irrational. You know, people aren't rationally economic and that's a rival school in economics right now. But it's to the point of, there is no normal science the way you get in physics or chemistry where people aren't questioning like the, the, the periodic table or the basics of Newtonian physics. They have a starting point they agree on. Then debates happen later down the road, you know, but. Okay. So in, in the natural sciences. Oh yeah, go on. Yeah. Sorry. So I, I so something like thinking fast and slow by Daniel Kahneman. It, what, what's your, What's your take on that? Because that, to me, seems pretty legit. He's won a Nobel Prize. Every yeah. self-help book I've ever read cites <laughs> loss aversion in some way or another, or prospect theory, or like, you know, we losses loom larger than gains and all this sort of stuff. And a lot of his ideas seem to have sort of made it into the blog posts that I would read and the Twitter threads that I would, I would follow. Um, yeah, so what's your take on that sort of scientific approach to like behavior kind of thing? Yeah. I mean, my take is partly that, you know, because he is part of this whole school of behavioral economics that's a backlash against neoclassical economics. So neoclassical economics dominated for decades was just humans are rationally calculative. They maximize their choices. The reaction to that was, no, no, no. Look at humans psychologically and they make all kinds of irrational choices. They can't calculate well about their pocketbooks. I mean, maybe if it's very simple, but they often make uh, there are patterns of error cognitively that people have where they they 
they have kinds of mistakes they make over and over again. And in fact, there already should have been trouble because if we were just naturally, spontaneously, mathematically economistic, the way that neoclassical economics said, you really shouldn't have to study it. It should come very easily because you should be really just studying your own thought process. So in one sense, I'd say to this like new school, great, wonderful, corrective. But in another sense, it's got the same problem, right? And if you look recently, there's been a big blowback against people like Dan Ariely, who's part of that school, his book, um, Predictably Irrational, not only for issues around sort of like the, whether the research was well done and can be reproduced, but also around some of the predictive claims, you know, that people really are irrational always in this sense. Um, so, you know, it, I think we need a better picture of what human beings are to make sense out of why from, you know, from within rival schools that are trying to say, we've really got the science of human behavior. Everyone can see like what's wrong with the, the other rival school, that the other rival school doesn't, you know, the emperor doesn't have any clothes on um, and that there are limits, you know, to, to what they're saying. And so I think the real problem here is, um, is philosophical, honestly. It's a problem of how, how these different groups are thinking about the human person. So I, I give like two cheers to, to that school of thought, Ali. I would say like, well, wonderful. You showed that we're not predictably rational in the way that neoclassical economics said. But now you're saying that we just are responsible, or responsive to nudges in this predictive way and that every time you build in a nudge, you know, that we'll respond that way, which is also not true. Um, so humans are a little more mysterious. Um, and I don't mean that to sort of mystify the human, but it, it doesn't fit that model either. It would be part of my answer, but sh surely they're not—they're not saying, "Hey, every time you nudge someone in this way, they'll behave this way." They're saying, "Hey, if you nudge enough people this way, they're more likely than not to behave in this particular way." And it becomes a—at least my understanding of this—is that it's more of a probabilistic thing. Yes, of course, everyone is different, but on average, you know, there are patterns that you can tease out which are, you know, uh, interesting at worst and useful at best <laughs> in terms of uh, informing how you design an app or how you design public policy or things like that. Yeah. Right. And can I, so there's a wonderful example at the beginning of Cass Sunstein and Thaler's nudge, which is, it's kind of stupid, but it's unforgettable, which is this urinal example in the United States where they put these flies at the bottom of all these urinals, because what they found was that people had men when they'd go in to pee in the urinal, had a cognitive bias to peeing on the fly. And so like the janitors had to clean up a lot less if they put the fly in there, right? Um, so this is an example of, you know, well, statistically, yeah, there's, won't the vast majority of men start aiming for the fly instead of whatever the hell else they were doing before then? Um, and I brought my, here's my beef with this. My beef with this is not, so you might get a, a statistical um, analysis of men going into bathrooms and doing this and, oh, wow, look, you know, we've proven that men always pee on flies. But what that neglects, and here's my substantive alternative take, is that humans are cultural animals and they're self-interpreting. And what we're always trying to get around is our agency in the interpretation of our meanings. And so imagine a culture in which the fly is a sacred symbol, right? And the fly is some, you know, it's like a religious symbol. And then suddenly all the men are peeing on the floor because they don't want to pee on the religious, you know, deity of the fly or whatever. Or imagine a situation, this is very American, where the, the libertarians figure out that this is big brother trying to get them to pee on the fly. So everyone starts peeing off the fly again. And then your statistical model's gone, right? You see what I'm saying? Like something doesn't work anymore. 
Um, and so what you really need is a cultural story to explain why people do what they do. So like, the statistics might track for a while, but then you get these like situations that um, disprove the theory, right? It, and, and so in other words, what you don't have is an... In I think the, the mistake that's happening over and over again, one pattern of mistake is we'll have an impersonal mechanistic explanation that can forego people's meanings, their stories, their self-interpretations. And so the, the mistake that both those schools of economics are making is they're trying to they're trying to ape the natural sciences. They're trying to sort of say, look, there's a sufficient set of conditions that are impersonal and I can predict what'll happen next, like a scientist. But since we're cultural animals, on my view, this always sooner or later blows up. It doesn't work um, because we're just not that kind of a being that always mechanistically responds to a stimulus or always behaves rationally according to our like pocketbooks or whatever the, the alternative theory is. Okay, so if you if you read a book like okay, let, let's say you know I you know I'm not really I'm not really convinced of this. I'm just like a I'm I'm a normal person, you know. Jason, you're up in your ivory tower at Pepperdine, right? You're writing your philosophy. You are, you know, <laughs> you're reading these books that I can I can, I wouldn't be able to understand these books that you're reading. Probably even some of the books that you're writing. Um, I read I read like Thinking Fast and Slow. And yeah, it's kind of helped me conceptualize the way I think, you know, when I'm, uh, you know, if I have like a gut reaction to something, it's made me more mindful of it. I'm like, oh, that's my system one thinking. Actually, I don't know. I haven't read the book, <laughs> but I've kind of I've absorbed enough of it. But like, you know, it's helped me kind of check myself and not get too caught up in, you know, when I'm being impulsive or something like, why can't you let me have that, man? Like, what is, <laughs> what, what, yeah, I guess, why can't you let me have that? Why, like, why is that actually bad for me and, and bad for society? And and like you know you're you're right. Maybe twenty years from now, the cultural narratives will have changed, and like it'll stop actually being practically useful. But it's probably useful to me today. So, firstly, like why is that bad? And secondly, like what would you like if you were writing Thinking Fast and Slow? Like what? Like what's your alternative? <laughs> yeah. Well, first of all, if you like Thinking Fast and Slow, I do think you could hack through We Built Reality for what it's worth because it was <laughs> written for a popular, you know. All the academics told me it's too popular, and then all the the lay people are like, "This is too academic." So I don't know. The book is in a weird. No, I thought we built reality was very. It was it wasn't very academic. Like the rest of your stuff yeah. is way more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can barely understand the rest of it. Yeah. Yeah, and it was sort of it was meant to be sort of helpful to people across the board, which sometimes means it's helpful to no one. But um, <laughs> what what I would say, I mean, that's a wonderful question, um, Taymor. Like that, that's a great question. Like why why can't we? And, and I, I, part of me wants to say. Well, you know, the way that social science usually works, the reason anyone finds it plausible at all is it is usually picking up on something that is true. But in what way is it true, right? So um, take like uh, neoclassical economics, right? Like, okay, um, I can predict what people will do because they have a preference schedule and they decide, they make all their decisions like it was their pocketbook, anything, you know, like who they vote for, it's the economy, et cetera. And part of me wants to say, well, you know, we live in market societies, to your point, and a lot of people have modeled their own thinking to have practiced daily at being just economistic. They think that costs more than this, so it's rational to buy that. Um, and, and or to your point about, you know, like, what about the piece of advice there about, you know, maybe checking myself in this way? And sometimes there's good common sense advice that's laden inside the social science. But what I would want to say on the on, on the level that it's bad, first of all, it's not true in the way we think it is. So it will eventually it's it's self-defeating in some way and is very limited. 
But but worse than that is that we're not aware that what we're doing is a kind of cultural ethical exhortation. Um, we think we're just doing science. And that's where the PSYOP, like, if you like, is happening, where we're being superstitious. I mean, we're really evoking an authority that's not there. So, And there I want to say everything is sort of dangerous. So take the dating example you brought up earlier, because I talk about that in Weeple Reality. Algorithmic dating, which is the basis for things like Tinder and swiping and whatnot. I mean, you could look at that. And if you read people who defend it, they say, hey, we're finally allowing you to be really scientific about finding someone you love. Like here, the algorithm figures out criteria that you're into or that most people like you are into. You know, it has everything to do from physical appearance to educational level, interest, blah, 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 blah. And you can swipe and we're, we're this is like an efficiency and, and rationalistic form of matchmaking that is, you know, um, goes far beyond anything any prior culture could dream of. And so it's more scientific and it's helping you be more rational. My answer to that is we're... That theory that's supposed to be just descriptive and helping me understand my potential mates or my potential, um, you know, future spouse or whatever is actually itself a new kind of set of cultural practices that displaces and is in rivalry with other forms. You know, if I view people as a cluster of swappable um, features or qualities that I can maximize, I'm already in a certain stance vis-a-vis them. I mean... And then we can have the debate, is that good or bad? But let's first discuss that it is a cultural or ethical stance. It looks to me slightly shallow and consumeristic to treat people this way. And I think people feel that malaise when they use Tinder. Not everyone, some people love it, but some people feel really depressed by it, right? They feel like they're being objectified and maybe like they're objectifying. And so we're displacing other forms of courtship that take into account, for instance, the singularity of a person. I would... If we, if I were to have a debate with someone on romantic love, I would say that dis, even destroys or corrupts the ability to be in front of a person as a singular event that I don't have total control of or total understanding of, you know? And so my beef there is there's this kind of scientistic, really dystopian thing that's being introduced into culture. And people are just taking it as this is a neutral tool. This is just helping me do the same thing better. No, it's not helping you do the same thing better. It's changing the thing you're doing. And in fact, it'll probably lead to you being worse at sticking with people, worse at loving people. That's my take on that. So yeah, and I would I have similar problems with a lot of the practices around these um, supposedly scientific theories. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I think it, it would be helpful to dig into this because I think if someone if someone is listening and they haven't read the book, they're probably, I think everything we've talked about so far is like <clears throat> relatively theoretical. I think the dating example was good. Um, but even then it's hard. I think if you, if you're living in that world, um, it's hard to imagine, it's hard, it's hard to imagine, okay, like what's your, like, how else should I conceptualize stuff? Um, and so, yeah, what, what else, what do, what do you find are like the most, you know, for like lay people who you talk to about this? Um, like, I know if you're like Thanksgiving or something and, you know, your mom's like, oh, Jason, like, you know, what are you up to these days? Or, you know, uh, what are you researching or something? Right. Like, um, uh, yeah, what, what are, what are like the sort of the examples that people find most convincing of like, Hey, this thing that we think that seems neutral on the surface of it, because it's just like scientific or something, there's actually, you know, it's actually guiding you toward a set of values that you may not be aware of and may not actually want to be kind of, you know, pushed towards. So what are some of those other things that people, yeah. Yeah. I think a big one is for instance, um, w- the way people say, well, I know how you're going to vote because of your demographics, like, 
okay, you're a white woman, you will vote, you know, for this party. Um, yep. People never self-narrate this way. They never say, well, I voted for this candidate because I'm a white woman. Like that's right. just a bad reason. You know, it may be that there are some people who vote because, but this is very thin. Usually if you ask people, why do you have that political conviction so intensely? They want to tell you a story and they usually want to tell you a story about what's right and just and what's gone wrong and et cetera, et cetera. And so the idea that what does the explanation is just some brute facts about you, some social facts explain your actual political position or convictions is not something that I think almost anyone self applies. We're very comfortable applying it to others. Oh, you did that because you're white working class or because you're a minority or because you're gay or because you're Christian. We do that to other people, but we don't actually say, I don't know why I voted for that. I guess I'm just, you know, uh, upper class credential delete and just kind of ping, I voted that way. Right. Like, no, we think we have reasons and a story is and I could have chosen otherwise. And in fact, the truth is we all can vote against demography. I mean, I think it's been a real scandal here in the United States. And uh, but, you know, the whole Trumpist phenomenon is um, it is it is a ultra nationalist. It does have some very bigoted um, to me, really repugnant as aspects for what it's worth. But what's even more shocking is that some working class people who back it like right now, Hispanics are realigning around Trump, even though Trump says all these terrible things about people on the border. So if you just had a view that your social facts should explain your behavior, that just explodes your mind. And a lot of people have taken on a kind of technocratic view of politics are, are frequently disappointed because they keep waiting for the great realignment toward liberalism because everyone who's X, Y, Z becomes a liberal sooner or later. And they don't, they become something else. Right. Um, so it's part of what I would say is we don't self, we don't self apply it very often. You know, um, if someone asks me why I fall in love with someone, I won't say, well, I'm a cluster of these features. We don't self apply the theories. We're very comfortable applying them to other people, not ourselves. Yeah, for sure. But it seems like we're talking about two kinds of thing, right? Like, it seems, you know, the the sort of the commentators and, you know, Nate Silver and these political predictor types, um, it's it seems like the thing they're trying to do is, like, do the predicting thing. Um, and they're, it's, I, 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 haven't, I haven't looked into this, but they might just, they might say, look, you, what you're saying is right, Jason. Like, obviously, you know, people aren't voting for that reason. And, and, you know, maybe, maybe it just, it's just about like, Hey, what, you know, what is a, you know, what, what does it mean to explain a phenomenon? Right. Or like, what does it mean to have a reason you know, for this to be a cause or, you know, whatever. And obviously a lot, of, a lot has been written on that, but they, they might just say like, look, I'm trying to just like predict what's going to happen in these things. I'm not saying these people don't have stories. I'm not saying these people don't have reasons, but like, yeah, it feels like there should be room for this kind of statistical approach that mm -hmm. I think dominates all uh, the statistical approach seems to dominate all of the discourse about pretty much anything. It's like, Hey, you know, we looked at a bunch of data, these things like correlate or whatever, and something about R squared or whatever. And like, therefore this thing is going to happen, you know, something like, like, isn't there room for that kind of approach for certain types of things? And then for other kinds of things, like obviously understanding and sort of, you know, have, having an actual explanatory theory, um, it just seems like we're talking about different things there. Well, yes, I think statistics are incredibly valuable. My beef with Nate Silver and those guys is they think the statistics explain, whereas I think they just describe stuff that we need some story about. 
And okay. and and the point point in my favor is they keep spectacularly getting it wrong, like badly, horribly wrong. I mean, social scientists have not predicted any of the major events that have shaken Western societies in the last in my lifetime. I mean, the collapse of the Soviet Union, a bunch of Sovietologists didn't get that, didn't even see it coming, not even close. Um, the 2008 recession here in the United States and globally, the um, the two 2016 elections. So, so they don't they don't predict. It's it's a performing. Okay. Um, but the statistics are incredibly valuable because it gives you a snapshot of like a frozen picture of a very thin um, account of what's happening out there in the world. So I'm not anti-statistic, but here's the thing. Again, and this is a big thing in We Built Reality. How does the psyop work? We live inside our theories. We think of the theory like in the natural sciences. I'm describing the planets. I'm just giving statistics here. Like, calm down, Jason. I'm just giving statistics, right? But here's the thing. the stati- We are actually world-making, I call it. Okay, it's jargon. But, like, we're actually creating a kind of social reality that's gamified where we listen to Nate Silver over and over again. And so, and, and we think he's going to predict something. And we start having this very shallow discourse around politics is basically a game of alignment of demography and we're playing this kind of like game of, of, of point scoring. And so what drops out in a democracy at that point? If you just listen to the Nate Silvers, everyone goes on mute. We don't have their stories or why they think the way they do. Now, why is that a problem? One, it, it leads into a gamified view of politics where electioneering and manipulative propaganda are the way in which politics are done. So it inaugurates a kind of world or set of practices. My wife's a journalist. I wish journalists would stop just reporting the scoreboard over here. This might be an American problem. I'd be parochial, but scoreboard, scoreboard, scoreboard. Where's the long form interview with the person you don't agree with? Where's the ethnographic cultural sense of what's happening in the town you don't live in? Americans are complete strangers to each other right now, which is why we're about to tear ourselves apart or in the process of tearing our democracy apart, because it's not very dialogical or democratic to just keep scoreboard keeping and assume that there's a kind of social determinism behind the scoreboard where no one can change their mind because it's, it's all determined or explained by that's my beef with, with silver and these people is one, they don't have predictive knowledge. And two, the social facts they're appealing to don't explain. Hmm. They don't explain why someone votes the way they do. And that's a huge problem. It's not a tiny problem. It's a problem for how we cover elections. It's a problem for how we think about what's going to happen next. And I really think I I really think it's one point in the unraveling of American democracy that we play this massive irrational point keeping game gamified, and CNN loves it and Fox loves it because everyone just watches the game, but we don't have a dialogue, we don't have a substantive debate, you know, around things. We don't listen really. We don't have dialogical cultural forms of storytelling as part of our discourse very much anymore, at least in the United States. Mm. Okay, so it's it sounds like your beef is not necessary is not with the fact that statistics exist that happen to show that, for example, I don't know, seventy percent of white educated women are more likely to vote for person X than person Y. It's the fact that someone has made a career out of reporting that again and again and again, and the news cycle has made a career out of reporting that again and again and again, to the point that it sort of drowns out any more interesting discourse on why did that person vote for person X and that person voted for person Y kind of thing? Yeah, that's part of it definitely is that it's world making. It creates a kind of cultural reality. So it's another one sense in which this is the, the, the psyop dimension that I want to kind of subvert is 
um, we dwell in our theories. So, you know, a descriptive theory, Marxism has some descriptive theories, but then it inaugurated entire worlds like the Eastern Bloc. We do dwell in our theories. So we've got these theories that pretend to be scientific, but they're actually cultural. They're, they suggest a set of practices, et cetera, et cetera. That is part of my beef, but part of my beef is philosophical with Silver and these people. What we need to explain human behavior is a story. If we want to know why 70% of white women are voting the way they are, we need a story about that group, which, by the way, won't capture necessarily in its meanings or cultures the 30% that don't. So we can really self-mystify if we think white woman is explaining much of anything at all. You know, what the, the real explanation is, okay, why did women post third wave feminism who got jobs at blah, 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 were in the workplace, blah, 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 seem to align with liberal politics for the following reasons, blah, blah, blah. But we need some story about why it resonates. We, the shorthand is really self-mystifying and it's doing us a massive disservice because then we approach a white woman with all these expectations or a black man or whatever it is, like a gay person, and we expect you must have politics a, B, and C, and they don't. And so we're really bad at interpreting social reality. So my beef is it doesn't explain. It just, it's more, it's more description and it has a potential ideological function, which is it can open up a new social reality with new practices. So it's a double beef. It's a beef about world making. It's a beef about, they think what's explaining it is they're just going to correlate, correlate. And then one day it'll be causal. They'll know, they'll finally have the causal, the goal, the grail of like the social sciences, which no one has, which is the final causal law that always explains human behavior, right? But all they have is correlations, 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 which might be valid to a point, but aren't explanatory or causal. And whenever the causal inference is made, it's just a matter of time before that causal inference is wrong because we're not machines. We're humans that are self-interpreting. So we don't work that way. We don't work like click. You know, our bodies work that way physiologically. That's why we need medical doctors. But our cultural lives don't work that way, is my view. Yeah, I guess you do. You do hear about these heuristics a lot. Like it, it's. Yeah, I think I think I'm kind of sold on, on this idea that, look, this is basically just like a description. It's a heuristic. It's not actually sort of an explanation for something. Um, but I, th I think where. I, I okay so I think the I think the move here is basically that someone might say look Jason you're right these aren't explanations um but you know we're running you know we're running a democracy over here we're running you know the land of the free and the great or you know whatever it is um and like you know we we do need some heuristics we you know we need some heuristics Jason and what we found is that if you are an immigrant from certain countries, it really correlates with this. And that's why, you know, you shouldn't be allowed into the United States. Like what, where is that logic? Like, you know, I, th I think, I think, so, you know, someone listening to what I just said, I think, I think many people listening to what I just said, we just think, huh, that's kind of like, it's kind of sensible, right? I mean, if X percent of Y is this, then, and you know, you know, like what is, what is like bad about, you know, if, if, yeah, I guess, I guess now we're talking at the sort of, uh, sort of top-down level where you know you're right. you're managing a company or you're managing a, a sort of country or something. You're one of the bureaucrats. Like, what else are you supposed to do? Yeah, I had a friend in grad school. I went to UC Berkeley who said, and the, the invasion was happening of Iraq at that time, and Bush had all these experts come in that were game theorists and all this other stuff. And my friend is like, if you were running this war, would you want to have a game? 
theorist or some social scientist who's an expert in democratic theory? Or would you want to have someone who actually speaks the language, understands the religion and understands the culture? So I have a rival sense of who should be listened to more, which are humanists who understand the cultural languages. I have colleagues who think in, in my little branch jargon, again, interpretive social science, hermeneutics, who think get rid of statistics, get rid of quantitative. I don't have this view. I think quantitative is good. It helps us. I just think people have, first of all, endowed it with uh, an authority it doesn't have because they've made a philosophical error and assumed that we're mechanistic. And so one thing is their predictions will always end up wrong and exploding in their face. Someone will come up with an, a rival paradigm of science. So those are very good reasons to not completely strap yourself to that way of life. But two, to the world making point that Ali was bringing up, um, it would look very different, the social practices, if people took on board what I'm saying. You would have statistics. It's very useful to know, for instance, how many Americans own firearms, right? Like that, I want to know that. And we're like armed to the hilt over here. But that's that only takes you so far. It's a very thin form of social knowledge. Um, and so I would want to know, I, I would want a kind of cultural expert, like my friend was saying about the Iraq war, that understands the what the uh, anthropologist Clifford Gertz called local knowledge and thick description, like what are the actual stories and cultures people are coming out of? And that doesn't happen during election time or during for the economy or anything like that here. Oh, can I give another example actually I, I, about the economy? Because that's a big one where it does a ton of damage, right? Is So when we built reality, I go on for a while about the object, the economy, okay? And this one I think yep. is really palpable for readers because the economy is something we all check almost like a horoscope, right? And what is the economy? We think we know what it is. We say the economy is doing poorly. The economy is doing well. Well, what is it? It's a set of statistical indicators around like consumer confidence, GDP. It's it's a bundle of things. But it's something we all imagine that there's this thing, the economy, it's either doing well or poorly. What's my beef with it? What's not in the economy? You know, what doesn't is not included in the economy? Um, housing right? Like housing crisis, ecological devastation. So we all imagine together this thing, the economy as this objective thing separate from us, but we've turned it into this object that we let govern who we can vote for, what we ought to do next, what policies are on the table or not. And there's certain things that are just never described in it. And yet it's treated as neutral. You know, you can say, well, the economy shows that you could never possibly vote for that candidate. Or the economy's just fine, even though, you know, we've got Skid Row here. I'm in La near Los Angeles. You know, Skid Row is the largest homeless population in the United States. It's a massive encampment. Oh, but the economy's fine, right? Um, and so you can have basically entrenched poverty and the economy doesn't catch that. And so you have this false sense of like a neutral indicator, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, my, my problem with it is, you know, you, you can keep going this way, but First of all, you'll never get the prediction you want. Never, it's not actually doing an explanation you want. So you're being such a superstitious, a little bit like a magician in the past. But also, you're actually doing something that is potentially, at least be aware of what you're doing ideologically and politically in terms of the practices around looking up the economy every morning and not looking up the other aspects of social reality or not even measuring the other aspects of social reality, not paying attention to the other aspects. 
So why isn't it then just a problem of like, hey, we just need we just need better models. We need more. We need more variables. We need better models. Like, yes, agreed. It's not very predictive right now, but you know, we just need a few more models, a few more variables. Jason, we're almost there. You know, why is that? Why is that wrong? The reason that's wrong, and that was to the point you opened with, is because first of all, the world is an inexhaustible data trove. You can datafy it. It's it's marvelous in that way. I mean, you could never get and but there'd be data you'd never want to know, like how many hairs are on the leg of a ladybug or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Right. And there are things like that socially too, though. Like how many people walk their dog around the block in this city, you know, in London at this time. I mean, you could imagine a social political situation in which that became a significant question. But for the most part, that would be a complete fool's errand to gather data on. Right. And so my my thing with the data is data is never quite what it appears, which is data always involves an interpretation of what we find significant and what we're really bad at and what we've become almost like only half human on is interpretation and stories. There's always a story driving the data, you know, and I got myself in some scuffles here in the United States around the pandemic issue, even though I was totally on the side of the vaccine, you know, listening to the medical scientists, et cetera. But what really started to irk me was precisely that data was being presented as though it was value and interpretive neutral, interpretation neutral. And it never is. Even what data we look for, are, we always have a story. We just might not be good at telling it or telling others that we have it. That's the PSYOP again. The story yeah. is always there. Like the story is there. We can't get rid of the story. And then the question is, what data is relevant? Is the data that's relevant GDP or is it that there are homeless people in downtown LA. Like what's the relevant data, you know? Mm. Yeah, I think COVID was an interesting one where I think there was um, there was this sort of, yes, science was sort of where the capital S was kind of held up as this authority. Ah, you know, you know, the science says this, therefore you need to be in lockdown or whatever. Uh, and then it turned out like the government was just like lying about, about like the thing for the, you know, just, you know, all, all of this kind of stuff. What was the specific thing that you got in hot water for around, uh, yeah, around the pandemic? Yeah. So I, Harper's Magazine, the oldest magazine in the United States, existent magazine, and I had the cover piece in April on it around this issue of uh, the governance during the pandemic being basically a form of scientism. Um, mm. So the standard narrative in the United States is, populists aren't listening to experts anymore because they've gone crazy or because okay. Trump... and, and what what is a popular I feel, I feel like i hear people accusing other people of being populist but i never know what it mean. <laughs> what does that mean honestly don't like the term because yeah i i don't i don't think it's well defined but the rough the rough sense i have for the way it works in our political discourse is that um people who don't have maybe college credentials or a certain level of education so the populace in in a sense that divides it from educated elites. So the other to okay. the populists are educated elites. Oh, okay. So the populists are kind of like uh, sort of the, the riffraff sort of you know, looked down upon by the educated elites kind of, that's kind of the vibe. Yes. And so okay, populism right. is sort of a catch all for why aren't people listening to the elites anymore when it comes to the economy, uh, or the pandemic, or they're not getting vaccines disaster. They here in the United States, people don't get, you know, it's become popular amongst some groups to not vaccinate for anything. You know, it's crazy. But my, my take on this, and this is what caused kind of a little bit of um, problems, even the governor of California weighed in on my article actually on it, but um, because he was annoyed by it. But um, but my, my the standard take is damn populists, like they don't understand science. They need a good moral lecture on science. And in a way, I kind of agree with that, but in a way, I don't agree with that at all because I think part of what 
elites need to see is that we often blur the line between what the natural scientists can tell us about a virus, how deadly it is, how it spreads, et cetera, et cetera. And then claims, at least in the United States, about like what institutions need to shut down. Um, so it was being evoked as though if you had certain spread rate, viral spread rates, certain fatality rates, certain stress on the hospitals, that meant you couldn't do X, Y, Z. And that would be a mandate from elite representatives in the United States. But there's always a significance question. The data doesn't decide for us what we're willing to die or get sick for. And I think that um, people without um, college education sensed that some kind of sleight of hand was being pulled on them where they were being told science says, I don't know, you can't go to church or you can't go to the funeral of the person you love. And, um, and it had a huge blowback effect because then what happened is a lot of people took that to mean, well, all of science is bogus or it fueled an already existing mm -hmm. animus that the elites are using science as a vehicle for ideology. So I think that we're in this very toxic cycle right now where elites keep overextending the authority of science and then populists um, keep saying, well, to hell with anything elites say, you know, then it must right. all be yeah. stupid. Everything yeah. they say must be, must be ideology, which I don't think is true, but yeah. Yeah. Oh, what is hermeneutics? <laughs> is that um, hermeneutics? Yeah. Yeah. Hermeneutics is just, it's, it's the Greek word for interpretation. And it comes from the Greek god Hermes, who's the messenger god who brings language. And, um, but in philosophy, it's a school that holds that um, human beings are interpreting meaning-making creatures, that what's distinctive about anthropology, I mean, that's a really quick way of what all these things get wrong is we're hermeneutic creatures, we're meaning-making interpretive creatures, and we dwell in our meanings, you know, and there's always the question of what kind of meanings do we want to make? And I don't mean that in any spooky way. It's like Clifford Gertz, this anthropologist says, he says, one of the great anthropologists of the 20th century, um, he says, you know, humans dwell in meanings the way that spiders dwell in webs. I mean, it's it just we make meanings and we live in them. And that's not a question that all the data in the world can decide for you. And it's not a question you can have a science about, you know, like if I read Hamlet and say, I'm going to give you a data analysis for what it means, you just think I was crazy. But people read social reality in our lives as though it's a much simpler problem than Hamlet. It's just like, I'll give you the data and I'll tell you what it means. And they they're missing hermeneutics. That's that's my that's one of ways to get at what my like little obsession is. Is we the ordinary person is living a story and telling stories, and we need to listen to each other's stories more and get better at interpreting them. And so, like, do we? Uh, how 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 do we do that <laughs> if we're trying to, for example? If if CNN if if CNN were to were to drink the the Jason Kool Aid and suddenly <laughs> were to change the way they do like political reporting, like what what might that look like if they were to take a more like hermeneutic approach to the thing? Well, since I'm not a Puritan about statistics, I would still want statistics there, but they would be a lot more long form interviewing. There would be a lot more um, ethnography about different communities, like what happened in two towns over where you absolutely never go. Um, and so there would be, a, and what's missing there is the stuff we learn in the humanities, which everyone thinks are useless, um, but which I think are absolutely vital to being a human being, which is the art of interpretation, which is another way to think about hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the art of interpretation. 
we can get better and worse at telling stories um, and understanding stories. I'm not a subjectivist or relativist about meaning. We don't have the same kind of objectivity there that we have in the natural sciences where we just verify something. I mean, that's a simplified view of the natural sciences, but in, in the natural sciences, a kind of empiricism is more plausible. Um, but yeah, it's, it's like there are some people who are better at interpreting Hamlet and there's some people that are better at interpreting or telling the story of what's going on with the working class or, white women or, and what, what, and if people drink the Jason Kool-Aid, what would happen is we would have a lot more time to, um, hear the other story and not like some kumbaya thing, but, and then like, okay, let's debate the rival stories here. Why do you think America's not great anymore? Like wh what's behind that story beyond the slogan? Like, what are you saying here? Um, and people might be saying different things because some people are saying something that sounds vaguely white nationalist, but then there's some people who are like, like I said, Hispanic or black working class who astonishingly are voting MAGA. And it's like, so what does that story mean to you? Like, what exactly are you hearing there that resonates, you know? Hmm. Okay. So how that would a normal... Very, that, that seems very reasonable. <laughs> You know, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I think it's quite reasonable. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> less focus on just the data and a little bit more of like, what are the people on the ground actually saying and why do they believe the thing? And like, let's really, really try and have empathy for the other side to really understand like, what is the story they're telling themselves? Because narratives, culture. Yeah. Uh -huh. it's, it's rational based on their worldview and their circumstances and their stories. So like, let's just understand that. Yes. And then argue about the story. So I don't mean it to mean like don't argue. Just let's make sure we're arguing about stories. Because you know what? There's a wonderful book called Rule by Numbers. It is by an academic. It is kind of heady. But I think a lot of what we do is we let our numbers tell our story. And then we think we can shut everyone up because we said something totally objective that you can't interpretively dispute. And that's where we're doing the PSYOP or the sort of superstitious thing is like, numbers are always embedded in stories. And so what we tend to do is think, oh, well, the natural sciences are so wonderful. I'll just give you some numbers. Or I'll give you some data and I'll rule by that. But what we're always ruling by is some story or some account of what's significant and meaningful. And it's anti story is a democratic form, small d. Everyone tells stories. Kids love stories. People without, you know, elite educations can tell st their story. You have to listen to their story. Story is something you can dispute. Story is contestable. Numbers sound like the elites come down and tell you just what the numbers are and now do what's good for you. You know, technocracy is the word for that. I'm anti-technocracy. Rule by number crunching wonks. I don't like that. I think it's anti-democratic. Yeah, I guess the thing is when when someone does when someone does like share some numbers, there there, you know, your takeaway is 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 not the numbers. Your takeaway is a story. If if someone shares that, oh, this is correlated with that. You know, the, certain kinds of people. You know, group A is correlated with, you know, something. Then your takeaway is, oh, those people are like that. Right, your takeaway isn't like, oh, well, this is R squared of uh, zero point nine, and uh, you know something like this, right? So, right. I, yeah, I guess that the psyop is kind of like, um, yeah, you're being presented this sort of numbers type of thing. You're going, you're going away with a story, um, and obviously those numbers can be selected and or you know constructed in a way that this person can push their their agenda to achieve whatever they want. Yeah, and in a way, the, the, what I saw when I wrote We Built Reality, which I took, I was studying this for years, and what I saw something new, which is. I'll just treat everyone like they're telling stories. I mean, if we're meaning-making creatures, then even, even the social theories are also narrative or cultural. And so I'll just turn the tables. For the longest time, I spent like 10, 15 years just writing 
imminent critique, like a criticism of why that data model or that story, that theory, that supposedly scientific theory in political science was wrong. And then I just, and we built around, I just decided, you know what, I'm not going to argue why it's wrong. I'm just going to assume that those are more cultural production and more stories. And so I absolutely agree with that, um, Tamor, that basically the story, there's always a repressed hermeneutics. You might not know the word hermeneutics, but you are hermeneutical. You are storytelling. You know, you've got a story you're trying to get people to buy into always. It just, you're kind of trying to short circuit the process by just saying, I'm just giving you the science. Right. And yeah. I, by the way, I should say the natural science revolution discredited storytelling. So like we think storytelling is a child genre. We think it's something from the primitive iron age past, but it's not, you can't get rid of stories. And, and so that genre, which doesn't look like hard nosed explanatory, like when I correlate and get up a causation. So I really think it has to do with the deep animus in the modern world toward stories still being around, you know, mm. like, isn't that just something religious people have? Religious people have stories or primitive right, people yeah. have stories. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's a sense that, oh, well, oh, you know, you, the, the stories thing, it's, you know, it's not objective. It's like, uh, you know, you can't do anything with this thing. It's, it's kind of wishy-washy. Like, yes, you know, some people, you know, in certain circles, you know, they will talk about their stories or whatever. But like, you know, the, the rest of us who have to, you know, who have business to run, country to manage, et cetera, et cetera, you know, we can't be dealing with that sort of uh, wishy-washy stuff. But I mean, so we've, we've talked a lot about like, Okay, we you know that we have we have this sort of this you know scientism you know right that's kind of like the the, the psyop is like hey you know science is, is you know as it's sort of uh, presented as you know this very neutral objective thing um, and that really appeals to us we're like you know science has the status in our head things involving data and numbers have the status in our head where they command that authority um, so you know why. Why is why, why is this why is scientism the the psyop du jour rather than you know whatever else you know a hundred years ago whatever you know the, the, the psyop was like why 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 this thing where does that come from um, probably precisely because the natural sciences are so grand and great and they seem to set the gold standard for what it means to know something so then everyone has this anxiety that maybe everything needs to be like that you know. Um, probably, you know, the, the PSYOP pre-scientific revolution and still can be, can be religion, can be like, uh, you know, false notions of deity or theology to sort of get you to do things and manipulate you. And I heard a yeah. God say X, Y, and Z, and now you have to do that too. Um, but this is, this is the thing that is like kind of my jabbing in the eye of modern people is by the way, you're not as unsuperstitious as you think. It's just your superstition goes deep. It goes into your over appraisal of science, which ought to be the opposite of superstition. So it's, it's a real blind spot that we get, we're being superstitious precisely in the moment we think we're not being that, um, and, and part of what makes it so tricky is what, what attracts us to it is something good, you know, which is. We're very, if there's something modern people are proud of in a short list, science is one of them, or they ought to be mm. proud of it in a way, right? I mean, so I think that's one of the reasons that, and it, in fact, the book I just wrote on ideologies is about the, a lot, one way people try to say my ideology is right is they just try to say it's science. Like I have a science of free mm. markets, I have a science of the, the working class will revolt in London, Paris, and New York next. Um, so people try to false scientism. They try to make their ideologies scientific in some ways. So why, you know, a hundred years ago when, you know, the ball had already gotten rolling on like, you know, science is amazing and all this kind of stuff. 
and uh, you know the rational choice theorists were just kind of coming out and you know writing their you know book, books or whatever. Do you feel? Yeah, I guess. How how long have people like you been, uh, you know, sort of beating this drum? Like, why why a hundred years ago wasn't someone like you know you know wait hold up that's all well and good but like we're all about story you know hermeneutics man. <laughs> um, yeah, they they happen. Um, actually, I I wish I could say I was the first, but or maybe it's a good thing I can say that I'm not the first. There has always been, um, a reaction against this sort of hyper. Um, hyper rationalism in our societies. I mean, probably the earliest form is the romantics and I love the British romantic poets, but you know, the idea that poetry is somehow showing us something that the man of reason can't figure out, you know, the notion yeah, yeah, yeah. that the artist has something to tell us that is beyond the, the data or the statistics. That's a very early reaction. Since these things go back to the scientific revolution, you know, you have all these, um, attempts at sort of a machine view of society that go back to the the early enlightenment and you have a backlash almost right away a generation later you know you have this sort of overpraisal of rationalism with the enlightenment guys they got their white wigs on they think they got it all figured out and then you have romanticism everyone's got their hair wild they're walking oh, around okay. nature talking poets so it really comes out of romanticism through people like Gadamer, heidegger charles taylor so there's a tradition that holds that um, language and so on is really what's key to understanding the human, right? Poetics, that sort of right. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as okay. a bit of a, uh, just a random again, noob question. Uh, why is Charles Taylor such a big deal? Like wh what was his shtick <laughs> in a nutshell? His shtick in a nutshell is this, um, you know, it is this I've taken it in new directions, but I'm in awe of them. I think he's the greatest, uh, living philosopher in the English speaking world. Um, that's my judgment. I'm not the only one who thinks that. Um, parochialism of being an English speaker, I, I you know, withhold judgment. Uh, the other linguistic traditions might have someone else, but um, his accomplishments are spectacular, like um, across the board. Uh, and you know, one he he was once asked, you know, this famous distinction of Isaiah Berlin: is he a is he um, a fox or a hedgehog intellectually? And a fox is someone who knows a lot of things and a hedgehog is someone who knows just one thing. And if you read his books, it looks like he knows a ton of things. He's contributed to debates over secularism. He's contributed to debates over multiculturalism. I mean, I could go on and on. But he answered that he's actually secretly like a hedgehog. He knows one thing. What's the one thing he knows? Hermeneutics. He just applies it to, to all these different realms in ways that are really surprising and profound. It's like to recover the meaning making dimensions against like other types of ways of thinking about ethical, social, political life. So I really think that is his, um, big, big breakthrough, if you like, or big idea. He's the most important yeah, the living representative of what I'm going on about. He's the most important living representative of it. Yeah. I think the thing that drew me to some of his stuff is that it, it seems like, I mean, so from 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 what I can see, there's not that many people trying to sort of push back on the dominant narrative of like modernity, and you know what you know what life is all about. Basically, um, there's not that many people trying to sort of unpack that and sort of maybe even push back on that of like, hey, actually, you know, things aren't you know the, the dominant narrative is not as it seems, and it seems like him and Alistair McIntyre are, are two kind of like people who, um yeah, are kind of like skeptical of the dominant narrative and are trying to sort of un unpack the story of like, okay, how, you know, how did we get here? 
is this really, you know, is this sort of the end state and, you know, what's a better explanation for why we're here and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Absolutely. I think that's right. Um, and they're, they're, they're a weird pair because in some ways they're very different and politically opposed to each other, but you're right to see, Tamor, that they also have deep agreements about, you know, what are human beings and the critique of the role of science in society and whatnot. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I, I, anyone who wants to read those, I always say, yeah, absolutely. Like, um, they're tough, but um, they're really, really rewarding books. I mean, they change my way of looking at things, for sure, both of them. Yeah. Yeah, I remember a few years ago, I haven't been reading books very long. I, I basically didn't really read books as a kid. I mean, I spent a lot of time on the internet. I was, I was like reading stuff, right? Like, but I didn't, re I never really like read actual books. I mean, I read like a couple of Harry Potters. I read a few like Twilight series. Um, Ali was, Ali was always like, was always like reading books and you know, fiction and this kind of stuff. I spent a long time on the internet and even at, at university I did maths. Uh, so you basically don't need to read any books. Um, you get the lecture notes, a bunch of like math stuff. Um, you can kind of stay in your bubble and, and just not really get outside of that. Um, and I remember, I can't remember who recommended it to me. I think maybe I, think I had a friend who maybe did PPE at university, philosophy, politics, and economics or something. And I think he, you know, I think I was just having some conversation with him and he was like, oh man, you should read this book. It's called After Virtue by Alistair McIntyre. And I was like, okay, let me, I'll buy this book on Kindle. And I'm telling you, Jason, like, you know, this is like four or five years ago. Like I would, I would lie down to read this book in bed and like, I had never read sentences so long. I had no, like, it was so <laughs> impenetrable for me. It was unbelievable. And I'd like try, I'd like try and power through. I was like, okay, I'm going to like make, you know, I'm going to try and understand what's going on here. And like, it was just basically impossible to read. And then I like put it down for a few years. And I think, I think I had to like, um, you know, increase my reading age up to that level. And um, I think I'm now, you know, I think maybe like six to 12 months ago, I reached the point where, okay, I can actually, I can read the book lucidly and understand what's going on. <laughs> um, but it's really, yeah, it's, it's really hard. But I mean, the book, the book came out in like, I, I mean, I, th I think the ideas in the book are like groundbreaking and it's sort of completely affected my worldview and, yeah. you know, changed a lot of stuff for me. But the, the book came out in, I don't know, like 1984 or something. Like, why why has no one, or maybe they have, but like, why has no one like popularized it? I mean, someone could just take that. If someone wants to make a bunch of money, I think, I don't know, like, just take that book, mm -hmm. make it digestible, popularize those ideas. And like, you know, it's like 30, it's 40 years on. Like, why is it still so unknown and impenetrable outside of the Ivy, Ivory Tower? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, there have been some attempts to sort of trade some of his ideas into popular um, form, but they've been disastrous and really stupid, in my opinion. So like Rod Dreher okay. did the Benedict Option, which is just a tiny part of After Virtue, and he turned it into everyone oh, should okay. withdraw from civilization. I think Patrick Deneen's Why Liberalism Failed is an effort at sort of, I think he's basically... Oh, okay off McIntyre, but in a kind of reactionary way. No one's really got uh, what's really going on there, in my opinion. Um, so there have been some like breakthrough books from the right wing in the United States that basically are ripping off parts of Alistair McIntyre. But McIntyre is very hard to place, you know, politically. He started mm -hmm. out as Marxist. and um, But some certain reactionaries have kind of, um, but no one has really, um, yeah, no one's done that. And um, I don't know why that is. You should do it. <laughs> maybe i mean I, I was um i think you, you you've got this book about taylor and mcintyre and you know yeah. anti-naturalism i feel like that that's quite a nice sort of summarization of a lot of the a lot of the ideas um so i found that really helpful 
That's good. Yeah. It definitely doesn't reach the level of popular, but yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's and I, it feels like I, there's a book that we, uh, we talked about this other book, the, the rise and triumph of the modern self by, do you know this book? Mm, um, I would need more by oh. Carl Truman. Oh no, I don't know that book. No. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I think it kind of just, um, I mean, I find it really interesting because it sort of analyzes, you know, how, how did we, I mean, it, it's specifically focused on, Hey, why is, why is sexuality the sort of the, the locus of our identity? You know, why is it, why is, has it become this sort of really concrete, uh, sort of metaphysical reality that kind of, uh, you know, is the fundamental representation of who we are. And like, you know, how do we, how do we get to a point where, you know, someone can say, you know, I'm a man who identifies as a woman and, every, and, and, you know, that kind of makes sense to people. Like, you know, right. the way we conceptualize these things kind of makes sense. Whereas, you know, 50 years ago, you know, they'd have no idea what you're talking about. And it seems like he's kind of, he's kind of done that for Charles Taylor. I think he's, uh, you know, he, I think he, he, he doesn't even, yeah, he, he, he's kind of done that for Charles Taylor. But, I've run into this guy on Twitter. Yeah. He used to be on and he dropped off, didn't he? Oh, really? I mean, he's like kind of, kind of old. I, I wouldn't imagine he's on Twitter. Truman? Yeah, I don't think he's on Twitter. No, no. Carl Truman. Carl Truman. I know he he's a Protestant theologian. I want to say, um, does that yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah he's yeah. kind of a balding guy, kind of squinty eyed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, maybe he's on Twitter. Maybe, yeah, maybe I didn't find. No, him. he was, and he dropped off. He dropped off. Ah, um, but okay. I didn't. I've not read his work at all, so I need to catch up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, nice. Okay, so look, how how does a normal person navigate the ideological arena? Right, you've got psyops left and right. You've got these people pushing data, pushing science, pushing facts on you. That have their secret agendas like how are we supposed to look you know look through that and and you know make up our make up our minds about things in an informed way that uh, aligns with our worldview and values without getting you know pushed into into something that we don't actually necessarily believe in or want well part of what we need to do is kind of what you're describing about um the difficult work of becoming better at reading things because so the humanities are the, the crisis of the humanities is partly the crisis of democracy because in the humanities is where we learn the art of interpretation, um, at least rightly done. Now, not everyone has a humanities access in it uh, or was educated in that way. And I mean, it's wonderful that it, you kind of self-taught, um, Tamor. I mean, that, that's a great thing. But the other thing, maybe a shorter version of it would just be, look, we're inescapably storytelling creatures. And so um, part of what we need to do is take people seriously in the way we take ourselves seriously. Like if, if we, when we want to explain our own actions in ordinary life, we don't reach for some mechanistic correlation for why we did something. We tell a story about it. You know, we tell a story about who we fall in love with. We tell a story about what we bought even or didn't buy who we voted for. And we need to sort of afford the same kind of generosity um, narratively to other people at large. Um, and if we did that, we'd be a lot further down the road than we are right now. Would, I still think the humanities, there's just no way to do it alone. Like it's a social problem that we're bad at this. Um, but I, insofar as ordinary people can do something, I think that is something that they can do right away, you know? So basically we read the humanities more and try and look at things through the lens of stories. Is that kind of the advice? Yeah. Become better. Realize that storytelling is um, a central, the central genre for understanding ourselves and understanding other people, you know? Um, and it's something that's not, it's different than science. Like science is grand and great, but it has limits. It has things it can't do. 
Um, and really being a human is about discovering what the best or best story you have on offer, you know, is, you know, it's, it's really an interpretive problem. Existentially, our problem is what's my story. What's, what's the story of my society? What's the story of my life? Um, That's the central existential problem that absolutely everybody has, you know, whether they're going through a divorce or lost a job or whatever it is, it's a story. It's, it's a, that they're living, you know? Got it. And on a more micro level, like when you, you know, if you're watching the news or, you know, one of your friends is like, oh, I, you know, actually we commented on this in the most recent, uh, a couple of podcasts ago, I sort of observed that, you know, on a lot of, a lot of other podcasts, obviously not, not this podcast, a lot of other podcasts, um, the, the sort of main, the, the main kind of, uh, topic introduction is basically, oh, I read an interesting study that says that, you know, uh, men are tend to be like this and women tend to be like that. Well, you know, I read an interesting study about X, Y, Z, like how I, I think I commented on, on this episode that basically if someone says I read a study or studies show, I think the, the best way I can make sense of like the best thing I can do with that information is just like, ignore the like studies show a bit. Cause like I do, you, I, how else do you make sense of it? Like what, do, what do you do when you hear about some study? Um, I usually ask myself the question, like how far does this go in terms of being a credible description, very, very thin description of social reality. Um, but then what is the person trying to, um, do with it in terms of, uh, getting me to sign on board with some sort of account about what I ought to do next or what we ought to do next or what we're, oh, okay. there yeah, tend to be yeah. sort of repressed ethical dimensions to the sort of, um, you know, the study, it's back to that thing I was saying about rule by numbers. I think oftentimes people evoke studies to try to sort of resolve an ethical problem we have or to exhort. And that's mm-hmm. sort of hidden sometimes um, that it's an actual exhortation toward what's significant yeah. or meaningful. So I always try to ask myself, okay, what's significant or meaningful here, you know? And I don't mean to sound like it's very accommodating to like the current world. I mean, the university would look tremendously different if hermeneutics were central, you know, it would be much more of a humanistic set of disciplines. I'm a humanist. And the, so it would look very different than the technocratic multiversity that we have, you know? So I don't think that it's, it's a small set of changes necessarily. It just, I also believe in being realistic where people are at right now. And so you got to work with what's there. What, where do they recognize these things in their lives, right. you know? And so these yeah, are very yeah. small steps, but I actually think that it would require cultural transformation away from scientism to have mm. a more kind of um, aware and uh, defensible humanistic form of society. Because we treat each other like objects is one thing ethically here is since we have this mode technocratically, we treat each other like objects. Science encourages us, science, scientism encourages mm. us to treat people like objects. Yeah. Yeah, I think one one example you gave in the book of this that really kind of stuck with me was that um, I think it was an example about like a real estate agent and, um, you know, um, the real estate agent gets like, you know, on they're, they're supposed to try and get the best deal they can for the person for whom they're selling the house or whatever. That's kind of the agreement. That's sort of what's understood. They get like a certain uh, percentage fee of like the sale or whatever. Um, and so, uh, you know, if, if that real estate agent decides, oh, well, you know what, um, you know, I could, I can make a bit more money by kind of just, you know, ignoring this one client who I've taken on and, you know, their house will sell for kind of a worse price or whatever, but it's low mat anyway, kind of ignore them, focus more time on this other client or, you know, something like this. Um, you know, we would think, oh, well, that's perfectly rational. It's perfectly, you know, 
that like why why would you not why would you not do that like the incentive structure is you get this percentage fee everyone's in agreement about that like what is wrong with that um and i think that that sort of example where uh yeah i think that really stuck with me um and actually there, there was there was a situation at work today there that was, i won't go into the details of that but, but this kind of dilemma also came up where it's like well yeah i mean if we look at the economic arrangement and the incentive structure it's like yeah sure we could we could like do the the right. bad thing like it would be it would be perfectly rational to do and you know we have a responsibility to our shareholders and all this stuff so you know i'm beholden to make as much money for me as i can and so what in my hands are tied what am i supposed to do but do the bad thing um you know that the incentives would allow me to do but that i think um you know general you know very mainstream you know ethical norms would say actually probably you shouldn't do that thing yeah um, so yeah that that really stuck with me and it seems like in in situations where money is involved we seem to we seem to go like, sort of completely switch into this mode. I, I think, you know, we're, we're kind of like somewhat in that mode all the time, but in situations where there's money involved or where a participants in a, in a some kind of market or a transaction, we go completely into that mode where it's like, oh yeah, it's totally fair game for me to, you know, basically, you know, kind of try and game the system. And and I, I would assume the other guy's trying to game the system as well, because why the hell wouldn't they? <laughs> kind of right, exactly. And that's a perfect example of, you know, the the description is actually an exhortation toward moral language or an excuse or a permission slip. And right, right. it's supposed to relieve us of the interpretive problem of, yeah, but what's the significance of this and how ought we to act? And it might be that sometimes you act, you know, in a way that's the efficient, but the, the, the sort of authority of economic science there is sort of giving a permission slip to always do the yeah. efficient because it's, that's what has to happen. It's the only rational thing that can happen. And in fact, it's predictable that that's what everyone else will do as well, right? So yeah, that's mm -hmm. a perfect example of ideology is creeping behind the sort of just supposedly factual account of just what economics is, right? Yeah, yeah. Ali, any thoughts before we move on to sort of final set of topic areas? No, it's an intriguing conversation. And I knew basically zilch about this going into it. So yeah, appreciate that, Tamo you read the book and invited Jason on. So I feel, nice. I feel much more educated about the topic. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So Jason, like, why did, why did you get into this? Like in particular, like, yeah, what sort of, what sort of sparked this is like kind of your, your, your shtick? Um, I think I was, I grew up in a very political household. My mom's uh, from Colombia and my dad's uh, American and they, my dad, you know, English speaker, my mom, a Spanish speaker. And there was a lot of, um, lost in translation in the household. Uh, you know, my dad's very anti-religious. My mom's Catholic. Uh, you know, their politics don't always align. And I, so I wanted to study politics and philosophy as a young person. And then when I started studying it, it was like it was a vampire had drained all the blood and guts out of politics. I was just studying data and models and formal systems. And I thought, what the heck happened to politics? I mean, you know, I have this experience of, politics is this thick linguistic cultural thing. And then here I'm told that the, the way to study it, the sanctioned way to study it is this thin way. And so I always felt like there was something really missing. Um, you know, the, the ethical dimensions, the kind of cry of justice, even if you like, um, the sort of thick labyrinthine misunderstandings, you know, um, that that's very autobiographical, but kind of feeling stuck always is a bilingual household between two cultures, two yeah. languages, you know, 
explaining my mother to my father and my father to my mother and never being able to actually <laughs> successfully do that. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I had this problem that was sort of existential and then the sort of disappointment with the academic study of politics, like that can't possibly be everything, you know? Uh, okay. And then you found the sort of enclave of hermeneutists or whatever. And, yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yes. I found I found a language in a philosophical tradition that could um, illuminate or make sense of some of the things that I saw as limitations, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I was the kind of person, I, I read too many books, Tamer. I had the opposite problem. It's like, <laughs> put the book down, like, interact <laughs> right. with reality. So I was... I was like, you know, binging literature, history, philosophy, you know, yeah. when in my early 20s, like almost like a yeah. unhealthy thirst or hunger is probably competitive too. It's very intellectually competitive yeah. thing. Um, yeah. So I think that um, the, the sort of, I, I was always sort of um, very attracted to the humanities. I still think the best psychologists are actually novelists, Henry James, Dostoevsky. Those are the greatest psychologists we have. Not, not you know, Skinner, you know. Even Freud, right. yeah, yeah. they they get that better, and um, so yeah, I think that's where it came out of. I was always attracted to the humanities, and yeah, nice for someone who isn't sort of a priori attracted to the humanities. I feel like I'm kind of getting it now. I I, I wouldn't have been interested, like particularly interested, um, like you know, when I was in secondary school, probably for most of university as well. Um, can you sort of briefly make I mean, I guess this whole podcast has kind of been making a case for why, but like, how do, how does someone kind of dip their toe in the water? I know you're a big, like Shakespeare guy. Like we did some Shakespeare in school. We, you know, we watched some plays and stuff. It's just completely lost on me. I don't, you know, I don't understand the significance and the profundity of it. If I like go watch, you know, Romeo and Juliet at the Globe in London or something. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that it, it should just start from one's own life really, you know, I mean, you know, it should really start for existentially, like it, it, sooner or later, people have a meaning problem. You can suppress it for a while, but everyone has this existential kind of thing breathing on them. And, okay. um, you know, you just wait for life to spring it on you. I mean, I'd be curious in that sense, Taymor, why you picked up after virtue. It's one thing for a friend to tell you, read this. It's another thing to actually yeah. try fail, try again. I mean, yeah. there has to be something pressing on you yeah, yeah. in life, not asking you to divulge, but you know what I mean? Like, yeah, um, I'm trying to, yeah, I'm trying to think back. Like what was, that? <laughs> yeah. you know, the, the philosopher Richard already says like arguments don't help me if I'm sick and dying in the hospital, like a right. story, yeah. a line of poetry, some consolation of meaning, you mm. know, not as a mind trick, but because our problem is a meaning problem and we need something that corresponds to the meaning deficit. You know, you can sit there, doctors can do wonderful things to you, et cetera. But like some people die well and some people die absolutely petrified and scared and not ready. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, like those are meaning problems and everyone has those. So, you know, not, Shakespeare's not for everyone. I absolutely adore Shakespeare. You're right. But meaning is for everyone and stories are for everyone. So like, you know, like you said, you read Harry Potter, you read, you know, if, if you don't have a story, then you, you'll find just a deficient one. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, um, yeah, it, yeah. you won't evade the story thing. It, it'll be yeah. there, you know? So that would be more my take is to press people existentially. I'm not an elitist about, you know, but everyone yeah. has a favorite movie, a favorite, uh, song or a yeah, favorite yeah. you know what I mean? 
yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the thing that prompted me to get interested in this, interested in this is, you know, I'm a Muslim. I'm, you know, I'm practicing. You know, I, I aspire to be, you know, religious and pious and all, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And I think growing growing up as like a practicing Muslim in the West. I mean, I th- yeah, I think the general sort of narrative around religion as a whole is like, ah, you know, this is like backwards, this is bad, stuck in the past. You know, we now know that these things aren't true. You know, science, you know, the whole like science versus religion psyop, you know, all, I think, I think there's so, I, I think it felt, yeah, it felt like during university, during secondary school, there's so, so many narratives around sort of religion and its place in sort of the modern Western world. And the, it, the narrative is very, it, it's it's a very sort of directional narrative. It's like, hey, really, it, it's kind of part of the sort of general progress narrative, which I think is another big psyop of like, oh, you know, yeah. everything in the past was worse. Every, you know, we're getting better at everything and look at all the scientific advances. And like naturally, obviously that means everything is getting better, et cetera, et cetera. And people in the past were stupid. Uh, and like, you know, religion is something for your grandparents and stuff like this. And, you know, it's nice that they go to church and they have their community. Uh, or you know, go to the mosque. And it, it, that's really nice for them. Uh, but yeah, we kind of move. We've kind of moved on, uh, sort of thing. And so I, th- I think that was kind of the dominant narrative. And I think, I think, um, yeah, as as someone who is you know a, a sort of practicing religious person in the West, I think there's a certain sort of malaise that comes with that. Um, and I think, yeah, I think you know, I sort of had had some thoughts around this. Um, and I, I can't remember exactly how this friend ended up recommending it, but. Yeah, I think you know we'd have conversations about this kind of stuff. He's like, "Oh man, you should read this book." Um, I think I think that's kind of how mm-hmm. it came about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and I talk in Weave All Reality about the levels of depression, um, and some some depression. Fine, it might be a scientific cause, but people aren't allowed to ask the significance question around depression. It's not that oh, you find God or you find Allah or you find and and then you're you're cured of your sadness. But people, there's a depoliticization and a despiritualization of the malaise of depression, et cetera. And so people are being cut off from longstanding narratives that um, make a bid on like the best account of human existential conundrums. And so they're greatly, greatly impoverished to sort of face life, adversity, et cetera. Because I mean, that's another way at it is like wisdom is not the same as science. Wisdom is, a, in my view, is a narrative accumulation, you know, like Islam has wisdom in it. I recognize it, even though I'm not Muslim, I recognize Islam has wisdom, you know? And, but if your view is stories can't teach me anything, they all come from the pre-scientific age, you're really setting yourself up existentially for some very, you know, I used to be an atheist for some very, uh, some difficulty, if you take it seriously. And I think sooner or later you have to, it might not be till your last breath, but um, yeah. yeah. So I would say you cut yourself off from wisdom in some senses, if you cut yourself off from self-awareness about story you know Mm. yeah i feel like wisdom isn't it's not a word that we hear too much nowadays well it's it's almost like the the new the new wisdom is like something couched in uh you know studies have shown that you should do x y x y and z kind of thing that's that's like the new source of wisdom it's like yeah that that's a new oracle or whatever (laughs) yeah the ai is wise (laughs) yeah 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 exactly nice it's funny that you guys are talking like I, I I vividly remember having this feeling when we started this podcast. I think it was in like 2019 or something. 
where it ended up in the society and culture section of the uh, podcast apps, podcast store platforms, whatever, whatever it was. And I remember thinking society and culture, like who would, who, who, who cares? <laughs> who, 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 who gives a shit about society? Like yeah. the only, the only category that matters is business. Like why, why is anyone like business and fiction? Why is anyone listening to shit outside of business? And fiction? Like, fiction is like cool stories, <laughs> fantasy, you know, Harry right. Potter, Brandon Sanderson, Twilight, is and business is like how you make money. And, right. <laughs> and so slowly over time, I don't think I'm quite at the place where Tamor is yet, but I've started to feel a bit of the the the, the meaning deficit, uh, especially yeah, after yeah. achieving achieving the financial goals and all that shit. Uh, <laughs> and now I'm I now like the the thing I have on my bucket list is you know I'd really love to get into philosophy because like. I feel like people have been trying to think about this stuff for ages and <laughs> I'm just now realizing, you know, I'll, I'll have a thought or, or something and I'll say it to a friend who's like educated in the humanities and they'll be like, oh yeah, Plato wrote about this in the cave. And I'm like, oh, cool. <laughs> Which cave was that? You know, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> um, and so I'm slowly scratching the surface of, of this sort of stuff, but Tame was a few years ahead of me. Nice. Um, final, I know this has been going on a while, um, and I know you have a, a, a theater performance to get to Jason. Um, but I'd be curious, um, just, it would be interesting just to hear a little bit about like the sort of behind the scenes of like academia, you know, like who, who are the powers that sort of say, oh yes, Jason, we bought reality is a good idea for a book. You know, your next thing, you know, lost in ideology, you know, this is a good book and like, yeah, I guess like what's been like the what's been sort of the reception because obviously these are you know kind of more academic ideas like sort of against the orthodoxy like yeah how how does that stuff work behind the scenes and and how do you feel like your shtick is doing out in the public of you know is it getting traction um yeah uh yeah I was surprised I mean I think we build reality did a lot more people are interested than I expected which oh nice um is humbling there's no behind the scenes that at least academia in the united states i can speak to it's very you don't really have a boss i mean you there are division chairs and administrators and but because of the emphasis on intellectual freedom which is what's behind like you know tenure and things like that yeah. you're the expert in your field and you can get it wrong in the sense of your your um, peers can say that's bad or we're not interested or we're not going to cite that yeah. or we're not going to publish that, you know, there's peer review to, you know, like Weibo Reality is published with Oxford Press, which, you know, my peers tend to just applaud at that, even if they think the book is crap, um, because it's, oh, oh it's Oxford, you know, so there, yeah, yeah. It's not, there are no checks, but I basically do whatever I want, you know, um, I have, to, I, I get to teach, I, I enjoy teaching, but, you know, so I have things I need to do for my job. I, yeah. but the publishing is basically self-directed. There is no behind the scenes. It's just me, um, kind of doing things. And then, yeah, I mean, it's led to wonderful things like, you know, getting to go celebrate Charles Taylor's birthday in Vienna came out of We Built Reality because he really liked the book. So something oh, wow, academic when someone turns 90 or 100 is they call it a festschrift where they basically all write, you write essays for them, which sounds like a really boring way to spend time, but academics love it. So we all went and wrote essays for Taylor and he was there. And um, so wow. the book has been really uh, um just a surprise and humbling that people find that it resonates. Um, but yeah, I, I yeah, I, I guess that I don't have any, any um, behind the scenes thing to really offer in that sense. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. 
But surely, like, if you're publishing a book, surely Oxford Press is going to say, is going to think, oh, you know, what will the market, that, that sort of... Oh, for sure. They think, right. yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, but I don't think about that stuff because, as you can tell, I'm kind of hostile <laughs> to it, which is how you end up an academic, right? <laughs> but I, yeah, they care about that. They seem happy enough. With it. They're like, wow, this thing, it's sold well in the United States. I oh, nice. have okay. no idea how it's doing in the UK. Um, but I, it's done well in the United States for, for the kind of book it is, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Nice. Nice. And I've just, I've just pre-ordered, uh, Lost in Ideology. Um, oh, thank you. For, for <laughs> people who, because it's coming yeah. out in March. So actually, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty people, soon. Or rather, or April, April in the UK, apparently. Um, yeah. What's, what's it about? And like, what's the, what's the pitch for the book? The pitch for the book is that it's basically a theory of ideology that is taking seriously its meaning-making features and how ideology is actually experienced by the people who hold an ideology, whatever that ideology might be. And so it, part of it is just a tour or handbook of all the major ideologies because I think people don't understand the other person's ideology very well because we put it on mute. So each chapter is an exploration of the major or, um, ideological traditions in, in our societies. But part of it is this thing I've been going on about, which is I have a theory of ideology that's hermeneutic, that it that ideologies are world-making and cultural. And you can objectively say an ideology is false if it says it's a science or it's just mere nature or it's mere common sense. And so I have this um, theory of ideology that both claims to be better descriptively of what ideology actually is in the world. It's meaning it's culture. It has these first person features, but it's also critical. So like I can get rid of certain ideas mutations of ideological traditions when they make the move towards Ooh. saying they're scientific whoop did i lose you guys am i back you did but you are back yeah so if you could repeat that last sentence yeah so the last thing i said is just that the um, book tries to both be more true to actual ideological experience what it's like to have an ideology its meaning features and also to be still critical um and be able to criticize objectively ideologies that claim to be science and not be able to account for their own cultural features, you know, scientific forms of ideology, which I think all the major ideologies have scientific branches from left to right. Nice. I, I think it feels like now is the right moment for a book like this. And I think the front, the front cover is amazing. Like uh, it's kind of got this sort of like made, Oh, maybe you can show it to us. So good. So it's just like, uh, yeah, I, I love it. I wish I could take credit. Yeah. One of the major um, metaphors in the book is that ideology is like a labyrinth. And this guy, Nick Halliday, yeah. English, he made it and it's lovely. I mean, he just went way beyond. I just said, could you do a labyrinth? And yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I'm really happy with it. Can't take credit. Yeah. Nice. Awesome. Um, cool. I think we'll wrap it up there. Jason, thank you so much for joining us. Excited for the new book. Um, I'll keep trying to spread the good word over here in uh, in the UK uh, for We Built Reality. Um, Thank you. I appreciate it. I really appreciated our DMs. And <laughs> I appreciate meeting your brother. You guys are a real good pair. I watched some of your episodes. Good reports right. to you. Yeah. Yeah. I really like it. Yeah. I it. think, we, yeah, it would have been, uh, we, we, we try to sort of do these things in, in person because I think there was a bit of a delay on like video call and stuff like this. Um, but yeah, maybe next time you're in, uh, in London, we can sit around a table and, uh, and do another podcast in person. Oh, I would love that. I love London. What a great city. You're lucky you're there. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Thanks, Thanks a lot. Thanks everyone for listening. Thank you guys. And, uh, Thank you. Take care. Bye.
That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or on the Apple Podcasts website if you're not using an iPhone. There's a link in the show notes. If you've got any thoughts on this episode or any ideas for new podcast topics, we'd love to get an audio message from you with your conundrum, question, or just anything that we could discuss. Yeah, if you're up for having your voice played on the podcast and your question being the springboard for our discussion, email us an audio file mp3 or voice note to hi at notoverthinking.com. If you've got thoughts but you'd rather not have your voice played publicly, that's fine as well. Tweet or DM us at nOverthinking on Twitter, please. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.